0: Welcome to another episode of Bukari Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have Congressman Ro Khanna, who has been making waves, doing great work, being a great mouthpiece and a messenger for the party. And actually just, he's one of the few elected officials who actually answers questions. So I'm actually glad to have you on, Congressman Khanna. How are you today? I'm doing well,
1: Bakari. I hope I won't disappoint now that you set the expectation.
0: Yeah, no, you know, we've had you on the show before, so we'll skip the arc of your career question, but talk to us about Uh, What you've been focused on now that you're in the minority, and what Democrats are generally focused on in the House this day, these days.
1: Well, we're still pushing the economic vision. I mean, there's some things that we can do that don't actually require Congress. Uh, I've partnered, for example, with Representative Clyburn to be creating partnerships uh, with technology companies at HBCUs, Benedict College, Claflin, but not just there, but at HSIs and rural communities. So how do we convene uh, business and technology leaders to create new jobs, new economic opportunity? We've been pushing uh, what the president calls Bidenomics, which put simply is we gotta make more things in uh, America. The That's not a partisan issue. I mean, I was in Johnstown, Pennsylvania recently, Bakari, And yeah, totally decimated town in Pennsylvania. I was shocked to learn that the top 15 steel plants in the world are now not in America. The majority are in China and other parts. We don't have a single one in the top 15. How did we let that happen? How do we bring manufacturing back? So those are, I think, two of my focuses, two of the the Congress and president's focuses.
0: You know, one of the things I wanted to to uh, talk to you about is um, you. Your name came up yesterday on State of the Union, um, and you have a you have a great colleague over there. You have a couple of great colleagues running for the United States Senate. Before we get into the Supreme Court decisions and and student loans and affirmative action, talk to me about the landscape of that race, which has a lot of money in it for an amazing state. What was your decision making process and not running for it? And oh, and I forgot, and Katie Porter's running as well. So. Talk to me about what that race looks like and the outlook of that race. Well, I'm a supporter of
1: Barbara Lee in that race. Uh, She's been a friend. She's a neighbor, a colleague. I've admired her since she cast the lone vote against a prolonged war in uh, Afghanistan. Uh, I thought uh, she'd be great. And when she decided to get in, I said, uh, we're not going to have two progressives. And I'm happy to, to defer to her. And I also feel like the, the, the game has changed. It used to be you had to go to the Senate uh, or uh, the governorship before a state of the union would even know of your existence. Uh, now you've got people like Jamie Raskin deciding not to run for the Senate. And the House is actually a very happening place with a lot of the next generation leaders there. It's going to be a uh, challenging race. I mean, I, Barbara knows she's the underdog and Adam Schiff is very formidable. I think he raised $8 million or Eight something. Million, I joke yeah. I joked with him. I said, Adam, are you going to be disclosing the Republican censor resolutions as in-kind contributions to your campaign? But, uh, you know, the, he's, uh, he's very talented, as is Katie Porter. So it's we've got three good choices, but I'm for Barbara.
0: There you go. Let's talk about the Supreme Court. First, explain to listeners what these student loan cases were and what they were about. And in practical layman terms, what does the court's decision mean for uh, people who owe on their student loans?
1: Well, it uh, puts it in jeopardy. The president made a decision to forgive up to $10,000 of loans and in some cases 20000 for many working class and middle class kids. I mean, th- this idea that forgiving loans is against the working class uh, just doesn't make sense because the kids who need loans aren't the kids of the, the wealthy. They're usually kids of working class and middle class families. And anyone uh, can tell you that there are a lot of working-class families who are proud of their kids going into the skilled trades and there are other working-class families who want to see their kids go to college and those kids should have the same opportunities as kids in a uh, in an affluent area. So this is going to hurt because it creates uncertainty there. And the reason the court's decision was so wrong is they usurped the role of Congress. Look, Congress passed the HEROES Act. It was shortly after 9-11 and we basically said that the president and the secretary of education had wide authority in a national emergency to provide relief. Now, the intent of it may have been originally uh, to help Iraq war veterans, Afghanistan war veterans, but we gave sweeping language to the president and the Secretary of Education. If people thought that what Congress did was too broad, fine, change the law. But no one has tried to change the HEROES Act, no one has been able to change it. Under the plain reading of the statute, the president has the other authority, but the Justice Roberts thought, well, he wants to change the reading, and that's what was galling about that opinion. He's playing Congress when he's supposed to be interpreting what Congress does.
0: So what can Congress do now? I think is the question, and why I mean, I mean, you talk about the Heroes Act, but can Congress use the Higher Education Act maybe to assume outstanding debt and just cancel it? Well, the
1: president can. And the Higher Education Act, again, gives the secretary a lot of power. And what some of us have said is the president should stop uh, any payments on these loans until we make good on the promise to forgive them. And that means stopping the interest accrual. Uh, You know, I mean, it's personal for some of us. I took one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of student loans. I had years in my 20s when I had forbearance. I've done very well now. And I don't think loans should be forgiven for people in my situation who have done well. But there are a lot of people who are not as fortunate, and uh, it's a big deal when you have 600, 700 bucks of monthly payments, and then you see the number keeps going up. I still remember no, no, it no. Used, to, used to go up. So stop the stop at least the interest accrual, stop the payments, and the president, I think, can do this under the Higher Education Act.
0: Talk about with the politics of student loan uh, of student debt cancellation. Where how does that fall within the Democratic Caucus? Like I understand that Republicans aren't with us but I won't assume that every Democrat is with us on getting rid of student debt. What are the politics look like for some of your frontline members and how should moderates navigate the issue? What's the messaging?
1: Yeah, well, I'd say the caucus is fairly split, probably slightly more pro student loan forgiveness than, than not. Uh, and one of the things I'd say is to talk about who the people are who are getting uh, student loans. And a lot of them, our first generation to go to college a lot of them are the daughters and sons of working class americans so i think we need to to be telling the stories more about who who this is impacting uh the other thing is that we need to be making the case that no other country does this no no other country makes you go into debt to get an education and we should be talking about education whether it's a four-year degree or vocational education uh as uh, something that should be free in, in America and not force you to go into debt. But I, you know, Bakari, one of the things I think the party shouldn't do is pit the working class uh, and, and, and skill trades against those who are going to college. I mean, the reality is we need both. You're not gonna have modern chip factories, modern steel factories without the PhDs or college graduates, you're not gonna have them without the machinists and electricians. And and I think the Democratic Party's message is strongest when we say we're gonna need everyone on the team. And we've got to respect the steelworker. We've got to respect the Ph.D. and not buy into the anti-intellectualism on on the right, because I understand why well, they don't want people to go to college because they're concerned with all this. Uh, oh, they may learn accurate American history and may realize that that we had slavery and that we used to not have women have the right to vote. And that's their problem with college, not that the skills it's. Provided.
0: This episode is brought to you by Cars.com.
1: Oh, the paradox of the bagel, tis crunchy yet soft, tis filling yet has a hole, tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's, huzzah, a toast to breakfast.
0: Let's switch gears to affirmative action. Similar question, what happened in layman's terms, and what does it mean for black and brown students who apply to college this fall? Well, I'll
1: be candid. It means that black and brown students are going to have... a slightly less of a shot of getting into uh, some of these top schools uh, as they would have before the decision. We know this in California. We know that after Prop 209, when affirmative action was banned in in California, uh, black and brown enrollment fell dramatically. And eventually, California has figured out other ways, and things have improved. But it's it's still not where it needs to be. Here's why this is bad. For an Asian-American student, as I say this as an Asian-American, first of all, it's totally oblivious to history. Uh, You know, my parents wouldn't have been able to come to America if it weren't for the Civil Rights Movement and the Immigration Reform Act of 65 that opened the door to uh, Asian-Americans to come here. And uh, the reason there's so many Indian faculty at HBCUs is because the Harvards and Stanford's didn't hire Indians in the '60s and '70s, and that's the crew. jobs at everybody. just has Nikki Haley's debt, but I digress. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for Nikki Haley in particular, not to recognize the debt that uh, the Indian American community owes to the African American community, and that's not one way. Look, the African American community, uh, John Lewis has acknowledged the debt to Gandhi or something, but the point is that this is. Uh, The height of hypocrisy for Asian-Americans to now come and say, well, we don't want to uh, provide opportunity for African-Americans. But the other thing, Macquarie, think about this. You're going to Harvard. And, you know, people at Harvard and Yale and all these places, you know, I went to some of these fancy, uh, fancy schools for, for law school. And half the people there want to become president and the other half want to be on the Supreme Court and they want to be Congress and they want to run Apple or Google. Tell me something. Are you going to have a better shot doing that if uh, you don't have enough African American and Latino kids in your class? Is that is that the path to like becoming president of the United States or being in Congress and getting anything passed or being an effective CEO? Or do you want the campus to look like the world you're going to graduate in? So I think we're doing a terrible disservice to people in these college classes, Asian American white kids, if we're not going to expose them to the world that they're going to graduate in. And I think that's really The sad part of this this, uh, decision. It's bad not just in depriving African-American, Latino kids of the opportunity they should have, uh, but it's actually depriving uh, the students going there in a lesser diverse environment.
0: Let me ask a California specific question uh, because you've had Prop 209 in place. Can you explain what Prop 209 is and how do the affirmative action cases affect Californians?
1: So the Prop 209 basically did what uh, the court has now done, which is it it bars race uh, as uh, a consideration in public uh, education and in public decisions. And we saw 40% decline in enrollment of African American Latino kids the year after Prop 209. Now, some of us have uh, supported Prop 16 that would have tried to get rid of uh, Prop 209, and that candidly didn't pass. So we still are stuck in California with Prop 209. But what the universities and colleges have been able to do in California after 25 years is ask qualitative questions on essays, uh, figure out how to uh, build diversity through uh, more extraordinary outreach efforts in ways that compensate for not having affirmative action. It was painful lessons learned. And I do think that the country can look to some of California's examples and how to still navigate uh, diversity in a, in a post, uh, affirmative action world, one thing would be to, to get rid of, uh, legacy admissions, uh, <laughs> which, you know, which by definition are, are not going to help people of color because people of color don't have three generations at some of these universities.
0: So, I mean, I guess the, the more specific question I have for you, kind of the more bringing, bringing it all together is how should Democrats be talking about these cases? I want to add that I feel like the focus on abortion and Dobbs doesn't necessarily resonate with Black voters the way that affirmative action and student loan debt does. So uh, how does the White House and Democratic messaging account for all of these things? Are you seeing this kind of thinking in Democratic circles? And how do we combine these things to target the groups we need to come out in 2024?
1: I think we have to be bold on it. And we make two points. Uh, One is that uh, in this country, some people have had extraordinary economic opportunity and opportunities for wealth generation and building economic success, and others have not. And the Democratic Party is not just about providing everyone with a fair starting point. We have a vision for folks to to get good jobs and to start businesses and to have investment and to really uh, realize their ambition. I mean, you go to Gathering Spot in Atlanta, as I'm sure you've Ben Bakari, and there's like a teeming ambition there. There's a hunger there. And I don't think the Democrats are fully speaking to that. And we've got to tie in uh, affirmative action and student loans into a more holistic vision about what are we going to do to have the economic empowerment of uh, the African-American community, Latino community, in the modern economy? How are they going to build new wealth? How is it that they, they shouldn't just have uh, the option of buying into crypto? I and mean, one of the reasons I believe that a lot of... Uh, young African-American and Latino uh, men in particular are disproportionately invested into crypto is that's the closest they feel they're going to get into a f- friends and family round into tech. And I, I just think we need a holistic vision of wealth building uh, for, the, for those communities and then tie in student loan forgiveness as a one thing we can do to help people build wealth. Tie in affirmative action is one thing we can do to help overcome the 10 to one racial wealth gap and the second point I'd say is we can't beat China if if we have uh, significant populations well, not why is beating, why is beating China important well uh, I think we'd want to remain the world's strongest economy in the world we want to have manufacturing in this country we want to lead in AI and technology because I think our values of ultimately uh, Liberty freedom multiracial multi-ethnic democracy are 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 better stronger values and and we don't want to have uh, China, outstrip us in technology and manufacturing uh, in the way they have and and so for America to succeed uh, in in a economy where we're 330 million and China's 1.2 billion we're going to need everyone and right now we don't have that situation. Let's
0: talk to 2024 briefly before I let you get out of here and go finish changing the world starting with the great state of California. Um, but explain to folk how close we are to getting the house back. Um, and even more importantly, what what does a democratic majority actually mean for everyday people?
1: First of all, Hakeem Jeffries has done a phenomenal job. and And I think if you asked anyone in the Congress, they'd say he's uh, very well liked, and that's a hard thing to do in the Democratic caucus. he I don't know how he's gone as long as he has without having people say bad things about him. But genuinely, you don't have the traditional stories coming out of the leaks of Democrats complaining so we're in a good spot with his his leadership Yeah, uh, you know, this may seem trivial but he'll text you back it used to be in you know the older leaders and I respect them all but you had to schedule four meeting you know four calls and emails to schedule something and it seems just much more informal and that's been a, a a welcome change uh I I think we've got a great map I think the fact that Donald Trump is, likely going to be their nominee, puts a lot of seats in California and New York in play, uh, seats that uh, uh, are critical for us to build a majority. So I think we have above a 50 percent chance of of winning, especially if Trump's the the nominee. I mean, we could win three to four seats out of California, and I think we're going to win back some of the seats in New York
0: that we shouldn't have. I don't know uh, what the wrong. fuck happened in New York, Congressman. That was just a travesty. We lost We lost seats that, when you look back at it, we should have we would have had a majority. What what states are you watching personally in terms of opportunities for gains? And on the flip side, where are we most concerned in terms of where are our frontliners or those purple seats that we need to be watching out for and people need to contribute to? Well, I, I,
1: I'm i uh, optimistic about California with uh, Mike Garcia's seat, with Aldeo seat. We've got to hold Katie Porter's seat. Uh, I'm optimistic Sean Patrick Maloney's seat, which we lost in New York and number of the other seats, especially now that we've gotten clearer that we're a party for uh, funding public safety, that we're for funding police, we need police reform uh, and uh, against police violence, but we're not in any way for defunding uh, public safety. I think that messaging has been clear. I, we have opportunities in Wisconsin uh, and and even in some of these other states with the, the maps. I mean, as you know, the Supreme Court has uh, uh, been surprisingly good on some of these decisions. And so uh, I, I think those opportunities will, will will have a better sense by the end of the year uh, as candidates emerge. The frontliners, I think of, of course in the in the battleground states where we've got people in Pennsylvania we need to to protect. We've got a, people in Ohio and uh, in in some of these other uh, swing states that are going to have tough races and the DCCC is often the best place where you can at least find out uh, who the people are who need the biggest support.. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Congressman Khanna, we appreciate you. We love you. We see you traveling the country. You are by far one of our best messengers, and I uh, appreciate all the work you do. Thank you for joining the show again. We'll call you back.
1: Well, I appreciate you, Bakari, and we're excited about your future, whatever form that that takes. A lot of buzz <laughs> about what what, what you, needing you, and and you you got a big voice already with your podcast and uh, on TV. Uh, but I know there's going to be a, a meaningful public service in your future, and. Uh, I'll just end with this one point. The next generation gives me so much hope. You want to see the future of the Congress uh, or the country? I say, come to the Congress, meet Maxwell Frost, meet Delia Ramirez, meet Jonathan Jackson, meet Jasmine Crockett, uh, Abigail Spanberger. You know, that's the future of the country. It's not it's not what you're seeing now. I mean, I'm a huge supporter of President Biden. He's got to beat Trumpism. But I'm excited about the next generation and what that's going to mean for the country.
0: I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Have a blessed day. Thank thank you.